This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So one of the folks that I caught up with here at uh, the Milken Global Conference was Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow. She talked about many things, including how the private sector can play a bigger role in infrastructure. Let's listen to that conversation. I want to ask you about infrastructure, because I feel like this is something both Republicans and Democrats agree we need to spend. I know at South by Southwest, you talked about an initiative to really speed the adoption of new technologies. Where are we going? Where is the president on this? Do you really have his ear to say, we got to do this? Well, the president doesn't need me to remind him. The president feels very strongly about the need to address our infrastructure uh, state in our country. And the biggest problem is uh, how to pay for it. And the president has already said that everything's on the table. And infrastructure is one area where there should be bipartisan support. Uh, you know, any long-term policy needs to be done on a bipartisan basis. And so we have said always, the president has said always, that infrastructure is a real priority and we need to um, talk about it. We submitted a bill last year, February right. 12th, so and it didn't private, get enough uh, votes. There's so, so much private money out there, whether it's yes. private equity money that is ready to do private-public partnerships. They've got to be coming to Washington saying, let's do something. Well, there are, public, uh, well, there are private pension funds mm -hmm. as well as uh, endowment funds that would love the opportunity to invest in public infrastructure because they're looking for long-term investments uh, and with collateral that won't walk away. And that's certainly a government project. So I hope that there will be greater interest and allowance by the private sector to come in because currently there are a number of states that disallow the private sector from investing in public infrastructure. And so we have to remove those hurdles and allow the private sector to come in because they are a tremendous source of capital. One last question I've got to ask you because certainly the purview of the Boeing 737 fell under you. The FAA were still waiting for a head to be approved. Um, the administration criticized for taking so long in grounding it when other countries did. No, I don't did. think that's fair at all because uh, the FAA, who ultimately made the decision to ground the planes, the 737 MAXs, they are a very fact-based organization, and they needed to have facts before they can ground the planes. Because if you don't have a fact-based reason for grounding the planes, how would you explain ungrounding the planes? So we now have a number of uh, audits and investigations going on to see what happened to the certification of these two planes, which occurred uh, in uh, 2012 and 2013. Right. And then uh, we also, I have also set up a special Blue Ribbon Committee to look at the certification process going forward. And then the FAA is waiting for the software fix from the company before it can obviously do anything. And I want to assure the flying public that right. safety is number one at the Department of Transportation and that the FAA will not sign off on anything that they're not totally 100% satisfied with. Until they're confident. Are you reviewing the process of having a company like Boeing so involved in the process of government rules and oversight? 
Well, Boeing is not really involved that much. It's, uh, first of all, it's not cert self-certification. This is a process that goes back to the 1920s because uh, FAA doesn't build planes. The manufacturer builds the planes. So there has to be a steady stream of information interchange to see uh, and watch and supervise over the building of this plane. That's what that whole process is. Driving shared prosperity, that's the theme yes. of Milken this year. Do you think about transportation and how it can help people who maybe can't afford to live in cities that have gotten so expensive, how we can improve kind of shared prosperity through the transportation Absolutely. system? Because it can, with all these new emerging technologies, our philosophy is that the department, who is a regulator, wants to engage with new and emerging technologies addressing public concerns about safety, security, and privacy without hampering innovation. Because we can very easily regulate and make everybody stop in their tracks and then <laughs> everyone's gonna be safe. Right. But that's not the point. The point is we live in a dynamic world. 74% of Americans are concerned about getting into a self-driving car, a right. driverless car. And 94% of accidents occur because of human error. Now with these new emerging technologies, we can actually make driving safer. And also, these new technologies can give freedom back to the elderly and also to the disabled. But again, we have to address the legitimate public concerns about safety, security, and privacy. And so I think consumer acceptance will be the greatest constraint to all these new technologies becoming fully to scale. All right, of course, that was Elaine Chow, the Secretary of Transportation for the United States, and really stressing uh, infrastructure needs, public-private partnerships. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Right now, though, we're going to hear from Brian Kingston, CEO of Real Estate at Brookfield Asset Management. It's a story trending and a video trending high on the Bloomberg. Listen in. So we were on a panel together yesterday, and we talked about the environment for real estate. And again, it's always so local, the different types of real estate. But if you had to kind of pinpoint where we are maybe in the cycle, Brian, how would you characterize it? Well, you know, we're, we're in the midst of what's been really one of the longest recoveries, and in a couple of months probably will be the longest recovery uh, in U.S. Uh, history. Right. So clearly we're, we're later in the cycle. Um, but, you know, the operating environment's very strong. We have uh, strong GDP growth, uh, low unemployment low interest rates, and supply in most of the major real estate sectors uh, is at historic lows relative to their, their long-term trends. So and you see that continuing for a little bit longer. You see it continuing, and that, so that's a, that's a really favorable backdrop for investing in real estate. Well, and you guys just closed a really big fund this year, and I'm just curious, um, what's kind of your next big target? acquisition when it comes to real estate? Well, so our fund is a, it's a $15 billion fund right. uh, with a global mandate. So we can invest throughout the world. Um, probably about half of that fund will be invested here in the U.S., though, because of the uh, the strength that I talked about. The other half will be, uh, you know, really around the world. And we're in uh, Europe, U.K., Australia, Asia. 30 countries overall, right? 30 countries overall, that's right. Among the global opportunities, is there anywhere in particular that you really see some good opportunities right now? Well, we, we do like the U.S. We, we just closed in a very large transaction in that fund at the end of last year, uh, which is the purchase of Forest City. Uh, very high-quality portfolio of assets in the Northeast and in California, and it's really going to benefit from uh, a lot of the, that, that favorable macro backdrop right. that, I, that I talked about. Um, but, you know, we have projects going on. All, we're about to close a big transaction in Shanghai. Um, 
um, and uh, and we're very active in Europe as well. So, so we're seeing good opportunities really around the world. I think Europe's really interesting because I do think we're trying to figure out the economic backdrop doesn't look so good, as you well know, but that also provides opportunities for investors where you can get assets at a better price. Are you seeing that play out? Well, with, with, I'd say, interest rates around the world very low, obviously yeah. there's a hunger for yield and, and protection against inflation, and real estate's a great place to be investing. And so in Europe, uh, with interest rates at, at virtually zero, yeah. uh, if you can find assets that do have some yield associated with them, the returns can be very attractive, even if you don't have a lot of growth. Got to talk to you about the mall. We had some fun yesterday talking about it, because how many times have people come up to you and said, yeah, the mall is dead? Today. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Bloomberg Business Week just did a cover story that talked about Gen Z. I know you and I have talked about this, that gen the Generation Z, they like shopping at malls. And you guys did a big acquisition, the second largest mall operator in the United States. Um, what is the future of the mall going forward? You know, there's no question that we're going through a period of time uh, of adjustment within yeah. the retail sector, and a lot of change is happening. Uh, and so that's creating a, a challenging operating environment. Um, but in the long run, uh, great real estate always wins. And so we, in GGP, we own 100 of the 400 top shopping centers in the United States. Uh, we enjoy 96% occupancy. Right. Uh, but how do you do that? Is it just a case, because is it that they're in really busy cities, populated cities, and that makes it a, it's, a success story? That's the starting point. Obviously, with real estate, always location is, is critically important. And our, our malls are located in densely populated urban areas. But the other important thing is that you very actively manage these assets. It's not just a simple buy and hold strategy on a long-term basis. You need to be continually investing in these assets, keeping them relevant, and driving footfall into them. That's a great, leads me to my next question, buy and hold. So is there, are there any assets that you guys are thinking about getting out of at this point that well, you've held for a while? You know, for the last couple of years, we've been pretty actively uh, uh, selling assets that have long-term fixed contractual cash flows. Uh, because we are at a historically low point in interest rates, and as rates go up, uh, you don't have an ability to grow your income in right. those assets. So it's not a particular asset class, but assets with that characteristic where it's it's there's not a lot of opportunity to uh, to really improve the underlying operations. And we've been redeploying that capital into situations where we can capture mark-to-market and, and a lot of that growth that I was talking about. I am also curious, just going back to retail for one last minute, um, you know, what is the mall of the future? In 10 years, is it very different? from what we see today? It, you know, it's constantly evolving, and, and it always, always has been. So as, as a landlord, our job really is to attract footfall into those shopping centers. Right. Uh, and what we're seeing today, and, and you referenced it earlier with Gen Z, and it's even true of millennials and Gen Y, they're much more interested in experiences. And so a lot of the changes that you're seeing happening in the malls and the types of tenants that we're now curating right. are really around that experience, and, and, and uh, including movie theaters and other entertainment as well as food and beverage. Of course, that was uh, Brian Kingston. He's the CEO of Real Estate at Brookfield Asset Management. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now let's toss it over to Bloomberg TV. Eric Schatzker, he's there with uh, Ken Griffin of Citadel. This is going to be a conversation about capitalism. As you know, one notable billionaire hedge fund founder has recently attracted much attention over his commentary on the state of capitalism. I am, of course, talking about Ray Dalio, whom you know well. And Ray says capitalism isn't working for most Americans, that it's broken. And you happen to be a billionaire hedge fund founder, but you're also someone who, just like Ray, is deeply engaged in public policy and deeply interested 
in a prospect for civil society. So I have to ask you, is capitalism broken? So I, I, I think we need to take a step back and, and focus on some of the key areas that Ray's talking about. And one of them is education, which has nothing to do with our economic system per se. It's how we choose to educate Americans literally from an early age, pre-kindergarten through college. And how do we make sure that every child in America, irrespective, irrespective of the zip code they're born in, has a fair and equal opportunity to be successful in their life's dreams? If we look at the alternative to capitalism, it's, it's socialism, where we know the track record of that. It's, it's a failed history across Cuba, across the USSR, across now in real time in Venezuela, where you literally have chaos in the streets as people who have been economically subjugated for years are struggling with starvation. Starvation. They're not talking about career opportunity. They're talking about the basic need of how do I put food on the table. So I, I really think that fixing education, because education's broken in America, has got to be a key area of focus and reform for our country. We've got to equalize the opportunity for all Americans to have a chance to have a fulfilling life and a fulfilling career. But our system of economic freedom gives us just that, the freedom to choose our careers, the freedom to buy the goods and services that we want to buy, the freedom to live where we want to live. And I would never want to walk away from those basic freedoms that define who we are as a country. Some people might say that the state, the parlous state of education in the country is a byproduct of capitalism in as much as in a free market, the highest quality goods and services tend to go to those who can pay the most. And they would point to the recent college admission scandal as evidence of that, that the kids who were getting into the best colleges had the parents who could pay people to fraudulently earn them admission. You know, I, I think you picked, though, the exact right choice of words, fraudulently. It's a fraud. And all of us in this country believe that when somebody gets ahead by cheating someone else, they've committed a wrongdoing. So the very choice of words that we use just tells you how much we all believe in the appropriateness and necessity that people should be allowed to advance on their merits. Now, I think the bigger problem is actually the zip code you're born in dictates too much of your opportunity for education in our country. Lack of social mobility. The lack of social mobility that goes with going to a broken school. And you by and, the way... You and Ray agree on that point. Absolutely. Absolutely, because this is what we need to fix. That has nothing to do with capitalism or socialism. That has to do with the commitment of our body politic to ensure that our school leadership and our teaching community is aligned with the interests of our students. That's what we need to do. And in this day and age, and I, I live in Chicago, so I'm, I'm in a city that has all the challenges of an inner city that faces financial and economic hardship and the plight of crime. How do you make sure that the, that the young men and women in that area have a longer school year, a longer school day, 
the sort of supplementary education that, for example, takes place at SEO that will help to level the playing field for these incredibly talented young people to get ahead. Ken, even if you're right that education or the lack thereof or the poor quality of it helps to explain the lack of social mobility and the, and the inability of people to effectively escape the class in which they're born or the zip code, as you point out, in which they were born, what about some of the other symptoms that people like Ray Dalio and others have pointed to as potential failings of the capitalist model, the widening income and wealth gap among Americans, um, the depopulation of the heartland of the country, for example, stagnant wages and living standards in the middle class? So those are, those are all really great questions. And in fact, my family traces back to that deep heartland in America. My father was the first in his family to go to college. The first. So we really know, I know firsthand from growing up in a family where education was so important that these issues that, that cause some of, the, some of the challenges in our society that you're speaking to have got to be addressed, right? So if we look, for example, at free trade, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of free trade, but it needs to be fair trade. The U.S. has got to have terms of trade around the world that our trading counterparties enjoy. We know this has been very good for the country as a whole, but it's devastated one-town employers where the employer has shut down. And we did not think enough about job re-education or helping people to move to other communities that were going to be adversely impacted by free trade. We just didn't focus on this enough. So un unfortunately, through history, we're going to make mistakes as a country. The key is how well do we deploy our resources to address our mistakes. What do we do with some of those communities where people have been left behind by the unfair terms of global trade? So, number one is, do you try to create tax incentives to bring new employers to the region? That's if, been tried. If you're successful with that, then that's a win. If you're not, then you're going to have to encourage people to relocate elsewhere. You know, my family, through its history, moved across the United States in pursuit of jobs, in pursuit of opportunity. There's nothing wrong with having to make those changes in our country. Increasing geographical mobility increases the flexibility of our workforce, opens more doors. That's a pretty harsh message for those people in, say, western Pennsylvania or in Indiana or, you know, in parts of Ohio, for example, or Kentucky or West Virginia. It's a, it's a really tough message. It's a tough message. But they, need, they may need to pack uh, up look, and leave. I think it's important that we start to have an honest conversation within the halls of Washington about what we need to do to improve our country. You know, criminal justice reform, for example, is incredibly important. How do we help ensure that our incarcerated youth, when they have paid their debts to society, are in a position to get on their feet again? What about the education programs in prison? What about people who have committed nonviolent crimes, getting them back out of prison faster, but perhaps using your angle GPS systems with a with a understanding, you have a, if you hold down a job and you're looking for a job or you're working, you're not going to spend all those years in jail that serve no one any real interest when it's all said and done. 
So one problem is that many of the things that you'd like to see fixed or changed, criminal justice system, the education system, our trading system, might actually be able to unite people on both sides of the political aisle. But, but the solution is years away. What do you do about the problem that is now, that is today, these people who, are, who feel disaffected, who feel left behind, who feel like they've been dealt a lousy hand of cards, and, and who are increasingly turning to alternative models? So it's, what's so like interesting is, is, you know, look at one of these demographics that's really frustrated by the hand they've been played, the millennials, who took on a tremendous amount of debt to go to college over the course of the last 10 years. What created this explosion in student debt? The federal government nationalized student lending. So similarly, you know that one of the solutions that's been proposed is to forgive all student debt. Right, so now we're gonna just continue to add more debt on the balance sheet of the U.S. government, crowding out private investment, crowding out other areas that we need to invest in, in healthcare, for example that we need to invest in. So one answer that gets thrown out by the left is more of what caused the problem, more government. The other answer is to think about how do we encourage productivity gains within our college sector in the economy so that students don't have to pay $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year to attend college. The U.S. has gotten to have one of the most expensive university systems in the world but the quality of that education for most schools is not distinguishable from less expensive alternatives that we find abroad. So what happens is when the government becomes more involved in a sector of the economy, things actually tend to turn out worse. Student lending is an example of this. The home mortgage crisis of 08, who was the biggest buyer of subprime assets? Fannie and Freddie. No one wants to talk about this. We are going to change health care. Obamacare, you'll keep your doctor, your health care will be better, and your health care will be simpler. And health care costs continue to run away in society, and you've lost your doctor. So the answer is not more government to solve problems. The answer is how do you thoughtfully engage the American entrepreneurial spirit to run better businesses that are innovative, that are creative, that create solutions that make people's lives better. What about more taxes as a short-term fix? That's the kind of solution that your state, Illinois, is contemplating. That's what they're doing in Connecticut. That's what they've done in New Jersey. And it's on the table in New York State as well. It is, it is. It's, you know, it's always appealing as a populist card, let's soak the rich. Like that's, just a, that's an easy throwaway solution to problems, except it doesn't work feels good for a moment, but it doesn't work. So if you look at Connecticut, you saw the exodus of some of the major employers and major taxpayers on the back of their tax policies. In Illinois, I live in Cook County, one of the richest counties in the country in terms of cultural institutions or great universities, the University of Chicago and a nearby Evanston Northwestern. And yet we've lost more college-educated students, sorry, graduates, than any county in the country over the last several years as people flee the corruption, cronyism, and crime 
that has become part of the Illinois political landscape. Have you thought about fleeing the corruption, cronyism, and crime? How do you not? I have three little kids. They go to one of the best schools in Chicago, but there have been repeated incidences of, of, of actual, like, gang battles with guns three blocks from where they go to school. So what would it take, Ken, for Ken Griffin and his three kids to pack up and move to another state, probably along with the rest of Citadel? So I had three children, and we were talking about tax policies. My eight-year-old's delightfully precocious, and she says, Dad, why won't we just move? Really? And I said, because we're going to stand and fight. We're going to stand and fight for the policies and changes that will make this state better. And we're going to have much better success as a country if we stand and fight for the things that we need to do. In Illinois, I've worked, for example, on, on helping to definitively improve how our police deal with crime in the city. So we create these very high-tech facilities at the local precinct level that allow us to more thoughtfully dispatch the police force, whether on car, on foot, or otherwise, to areas where there's a high expectation of crime. It's brought down murder rates in a material way. These are the kinds of wins I hope to create to make Chicago a safer community. No, no kid in Chicago should worry about the risk of being shot walking to Is school. Is that a message to your fellow financiers um, to stay and fight so that you don't have David Teppers leaving New Jersey and you don't have Barry Sternlicks leaving Connecticut? I'm not going to sort of get into the decisions of why David left, and so it's not fair to David, who I think the world of. No, no, no. But, but the message, it's not just to my fellow leaders in finance. It's to my fellow leaders in the business community. It's to the body politic. We know what we need to do as a country to meaningfully impact the problems that we have as a society. Let's start to, let's start to take the fight to the streets fighting for better schools, fighting for lower crime, fighting for more opportunity. You know, as, as you know, I gave a fair amount of money to Harvard. I have several hundred students at Harvard on scholarships and on financial aid because I believe every single young person in this country deserves a fair opportunity to get ahead. There are other people who want to take the fight to the streets, but they're thinking about a different kind of fight. Right? They're thinking about picking up pitchforks and demanding justice. Do you worry about that? Of course, I worry about the soundbite, and I have to worry about the reality that it's happening in Venezuela as we speak. But I believe in our country, cooler minds still prevail. At the point that we resort to pitchforks, we're not going to have people leaving Cook County for other states. We're going to have people leaving America. And that's not what Indigus want to see happen in this country. So what if... On the left or on the right. Let's say cooler heads prevail, and let's be clear, we all hope that cooler heads prevail. And instead, those people take their frustrations to the ballot box. And that in 2020, a, a democratic socialist ends up being president of the United States. What happens then? So where's the House? Where's the Senate? And then what we've seen time and time again is when these politicians are elected, the technocrats walk in and go, sounds great on paper. Here's how devastating that has been to other parts of the world.
Now, I would never vote for a Democrat socialist hoping that they're well-educated by the technocrats in the end. But we've seen, we've seen how utterly devastating socialism is for the last 70 years. Whether it's in the USR, in Eastern Germany, in Venezuela, in Cambodia, we've seen people's lives destroyed. Because socialism is not just an economic system, it's a political system. One that we lose our basic rights that we value and take for granted as Americans. The right to pursue our dreams, to pursue the careers that we want to pursue, to live where we want to live, and to buy the goods and services that we want to choose. You've had quite the career, obviously, building Citadel. Um, if you think back over that period of time, going back to when you were in college, how hopeful are you today about the future of this country relative to how you felt in the past? You know, actually, one of the saddest days in my life was when the hostages were taken in Iran. In Iran, in 79. 79. And I, I watched what I really, in my heart, believed to be the greatest country in the world unable to help those several hundred Americans held by students in a foreign country. And saw the changes that came under President Reagan. The great changes where we became that shining light on the hill for the world in terms of our social and economic policies. That was an incredibly powerful moment in my life to watch the U.S. values start to spread globally, which has lifted more people out of poverty, more people out of poverty than at any point in the history of humanity. You know, roughly almost half the world lived in desperate poverty in the 1970s. And by the same measure of poverty, today it's 10%. And the great unleashing of this prosperity for the world is the American concept of free enterprise and economic freedom. So as, as people think about socialism, do you want to go back to the world where half the world lives in absolute, absolute horrific poverty with a diminution of freedom? Or do you want to embrace the society that we live in today and fight to make it better. Ken, I want to thank you very much for spending time with me here at the Milken Institute Global Conference. It's great to see you. Eric, pleasure. That is Ken Griffin. He is the CEO and founder of Citadel. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're going to hear just now from Carol Masser. She's got a special guest standing by. Radio and Bloomberg TV is Macon Del Rahim. He's the Assistant Attorney General Antitrust Division for the Justice Department. Welcome. Uh, so nice to get some time with you. Thanks so much, Carol, for having me. So, Megan, let's talk about big tech. And what's funny is you and I were talking before. This is a second year where there's been a panel saying what's going to happen to big tech. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has called for a breakup of big technology. Where do you stand on this? Well, we have, uh, you know, a certain number of standards of the antitrust laws. And we will look at, you know, every industry and apply the laws based on the facts and the evidence. I don't know if breaking up uh, any particular industry, you know, without having an actual investigation and showing they're, they're doing competitive harm is the right approach for antitrust enforcement. But um, that's an area that, you know, antitrust enforcers should be looking at, and we certainly are. And there's big technology. I mean, I feel like there's Amazon. There isn't any panel I do or any conversation I do 
that Amazon doesn't somehow come up in that conversation because they're such a bigger and bigger player, not only in retail, but so many other industries. Does Amazon, do you look at them as a different category? Well, Amazon has been a disruptor in a lot of different sectors, and they have played- Is that played, a good thing from your perspective? Uh, well, I think when you're, a, when you're an initial disruptor and create more efficient products and services and lower the prices to consumers, that's always a positive thing. The problem becomes when you have market power and you take certain actions that might actually harm competition, which ultimately will harm consumers. And that's the type of conduct that we look at. As I've said before, you know, big itself is not bad. It's big behaving badly. Right. That becomes a problem for antitrust laws. And that's a, certainly an area that we would be, uh, you know, interested in. Got to ask Attorney General uh, William Barr has talked about, though, gaining or getting more information on big technology. Um, have you guys had discussions about big tech and maybe what needs to be done? Well, uh, I won't comment about the, any private conversations I've had internally, but the Attorney General, uh, you know, we're fortunate to have somebody with his background and his knowledge. And his, as he said at his confirmation hearing, you know, uh, the role of antitrust and how some of the largest companies in our economy are, uh, are interacting is something he wants to explore. And I think it's an important area, but he's somebody who, from his background the last 25 years in the corporate world, is uniquely, uh, I think, not only qualified, but really appreciates the role of antitrust law. He's been a plaintiff and a defendant uh, in the industry, and he's actually argued in the European Union before the commission himself. Does that make him more sensitive to business aside, or? I think somebody like him who, who you know, appreciates the free markets, like me, and I think like most people in the antitrust world, is that it's our role is really to protect competition itself. It's not so much picking you know a business or one competitor over another or one technology. And I think it makes him sensitive and knowledgeable about the role of the free markets and ultimately the benefits of having a free market economy. Right. Macon, I want to ask you about some different um, corporate situations. You met recently with T-Mobile's John Ledger. Tell me about T-Mobile and Sprint. Was what was his message to you? What was your reaction? Well, without commenting on any pending mergers, of course, we meet, and I think there's been some reports that we have had a, a meetings with the parties, which is very normal in a process. Right. And of course, you know, CEOs of merging companies will defend their merger and and do that. And you know, uh, beyond that, it's it's a transaction that's under our review and it's ongoing uh, investigation that we're doing in the transaction. One thing that's come to mind, I've heard this in discussions. Are you considering Sprint's struggling financial position? in your decision-making on this deal. Well, Sprint... And, and you know the argument that, you know, a failing firm, you know, maybe doesn't impact competition versus a stronger firm financially. Well, ultimately, our goal is to make sure there's competition for yeah. the benefit of uh, consumers and innovation. And Sprint has been a great company. They have been an innovator and a disruptor on the price. Uh, they, they have, you know, I think there's been reported they've raised the issue of what's called a flailing uh, company and whether they're not under the antitrust laws, the laws recognize what's called a failing firm defense, and there's strict guidelines about right. that. And we certainly will apply the law and the facts that they present to us to that. Whether or not those standards are met, we'll have to wait and see for the conclusion of the investigation. But it's definitely a consideration. It is something we consider absolutely when parties raise that as an issue. It doesn't mean it always wins, but right. it's something we consider. Okay, I want to also ask you about Fox's RSNs. Um, Big Three has complained that Charter Communications and Liberty Media are really trying to kind of thwart its bid. Um, Ice Cube 
big three basketball league. We've got Serena Williams, Snoop Dogg. They're all investors in this. Is that a, a factor? Well, I've seen the reports of, uh, of the allegations of the issue, and there's been letters that have been sent to the division. Um, it's a, you know, certainly when there's allegations of corruption of a bidding process at an auction, it's something that You're looking raises uh, issues for us to look into to see if there's actual credible evidence. Uh, and I don't know if there is one here yet, but it's something that uh, we always look at when the... You know, the free market process of right. bidding is corrupted. We, we just had a recent criminal investigation where a group of Korean companies had uh, corrupted and fixed prices in sales of fuel to the U.S. government in the Pentagon. And we had uh, we announced about five settlements and uh, not only criminally but civilly recovered in that. So it's an area that we, we are concerned about. There's a lot of areas that I know that you're looking at. The other thing I want to ask you about is generic drug companies. I know the Department of Justice has been investigating that um, price fixing by a group of generic drug companies. Where are we on this? Because there were some reports that your office has kind of declined to approve some new indictments in that case. Is that is that accurate? That is not accurate. I have flatly denied those reports. Uh, you know, there's, oh, you know, requests for opening grand juries and, you know, indictments that I review and sometimes I send them back for additional information or investigation. But uh, as far as declining any indictments, uh, that is just not accurate. I can I can confirm it's been a matter of public uh, record right. that we have a criminal investigation into the generic uh, pharmaceutical industry. We've had two plea agreements of two high-level executives of uh, one of the pharmaceutical companies, but it's a it's a broad investigation, looking at multiple products in an area where we have some of the most vulnerable clients, right. the elderly who buy these generic drugs. Do you anticipate more charges to come in this investigation? I would anticipate that. Soon? I don't know. The, the process works itself. Uh, we don't have a particular timeline, but we're you know, in the process of developing that. We've had some public filings in the private cases in, in Pennsylvania, so there's some information out there in the public record. Going to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. We covered Absolutely. a lot of ground. I know it's loud here, but I really appreciate it. Thank you it. so much for having me. Macon Del Rahim, of course, Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division for the Department of Justice. Back to uh, Radio and to Bloomberg TV. Well, earlier today, Carol also caught up. She's been very busy uh, with the former co-CEO over at Whole Foods. That's Walter Robb talking about a really big theme here at Milken, the role of food, the role of affordability as when it comes to that. Here's what they talked about. I got to talk to you about Whole Foods. A couple okay. of years since it's been sold from uh, uh, that Amazon bought it out. Yeah. Has it played out how you thought? Has it been a good combination? Yeah, well, I think, yes. I think on balance, yes. I think look at the, the large theme of digitizing Whole Foods and taking the physical offer that we developed over 40 years and bringing it into the digital sphere. I think the combination of the two, the strengths of the two companies is realized through the joining with Prime now. And I think, you know, any cultural combination takes time to really settle in. Values, you know, those sorts of things have to join together. But on balance in the marketplace, I think the Whole Foods continues to come forward through through the partnership with Amazon. You know, I think about when you and I spent some time in Detroit, when Whole yeah. Foods opened in Detroit, and a lot yeah. of people were like, it wasn't going to work. This was an odd market. Right. You folks really are hopeful 
foods really embraced the citizens there, the culture there, right. and it's still working, correct? It's just uh, celebrating, it's going to celebrate its 6th anniversary in June, and so it just, I mean, it's a, it was my proudest moment as a grocer, June 13th, 2013, it was when that store opened, and uh, and you were there, so uh, I think, but it points to kind of this larger concern that is part of what's being discussed here at Milken, which is the tremendous disparities in, right. in the air. Food access is one area, but there's over 6,000 communities in America that don't have access to fresh, healthy food like we enjoy, and I think what Detroit was an attempt to do was to say, all right, uh, that community deserves those same set of choices, and so we're six years on, and here we are. Can we bring organics to the mass market? In a, in a cost-efficient way that is really accessible to everybody? Well, isn't that, that's the great question, is whether that can actually happen. So we've come, the, the pricing, the availability has increased tremendously over the last number of years. I think it's going to take more years to do that. But I think more sustainable food choices in general, not just organic, have accelerated big time into the marketplace. So I think we'll get there. I want to ask you about, because you're a new company, you're investing in a lot of organic yes. companies. You've also invested in a meal kit company. Yes, I have. We know with Blue Apron, it's not an easy business. Uh -huh. What do you think the future is of meal kit companies? I think it's part of You hesitated. A, I hesitated. <laughs> not an yeah. easy market. Yeah, well, I'm not actually an investor in Blue Apron, but I'm not in, Blue Apron, I'm an investor in a number of other small food companies I think represent the next generation of food. But I think for food meal kit companies, they are one choice in a litany of choices customers now have they didn't have five years ago. So we're seeing some limits on that in terms of, A, the number of times people repeat, the churn rate, et cetera, the concern about packaging. Right. But where we combine the meal kit with a physical store, in the case they plated, joined with Albertsons or Whole Foods is doing meal kits with Amazon. I think there the combination is more powerful. Um, I'm also curious about the cannabis industry. About which? The cannabis uh, industry. Yeah. Um, and I believe you're on the board yeah. of one of the cannabis companies. Um, that too has been a bit of a volatile industry. Yeah. Do you see a time, Walter, where there are cannabis products in all supermarkets? Well, you know, there's a haze of cannabis growth <laughs> right now everywhere. I mean, it's CBD everywhere, CBD everything. Yeah. So, I, you know, look, I think it's, it's at least five years in the United States before this thing kind of lines up to where the banking system can get involved and, and it can really go end to end. But I think there's some people in my natural food business that say they think it's bigger than natural foods. It's in the early innings. So, you know, there's a lot to recommend cannabis as a medical plant and its properties yet to be discovered and I think communicated. So I think there's real, real potential here. Again, we have the same questions around quality and standards. Right. It's kind of mixed right now. Is that necessary? I mean, I think that's where we think about 100%. government intervention. Until we get that, is it hard for it to scale up? I think I think it's necessary to really hit the scale. I think there's just a lot of money, and it, it, this is global, by the way. It's not just Canada, yeah. the United States. It's global. So licenses are being done in different countries. But I think some sort of stakes in the ground around standards and quality for the customer to ultimately say we're going to go all the way with this. Uh, I think is necessary. Would you invest in a cannabis company? Yes, I would. You would. I would. I, and I and I thought about that a lot before I would answer that question. But you know, actually, I've done the look into the science of cannabis into the plant. Right. I understand all the mores around it, but I think that there's something really healing about parts of this, and my dad now is 92 years old, and he's taking cannabis gummies at night to help him sleep, and it's helping him. So when I see things like that, I say, all right, with the real, let's let's get the real part of it, but I think there's real potential here. I gotta ask you one last question, because I think we look at retail overall, but the supermarket industry, like, where is it going? There's so many that are seem to be struggling. As you know, it's a low-margin business. Where do you ultimately see the supermarket industry going? A massive change. In other words, I think the education
of it right now is with Huma in China. It's a complete physical digital interaction and, 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 and integration in a fantastic way. But I think we're going to see the future store is smaller. The center store is probably roboticized or uh, made autonomous. The fresh product is exploding. Uh, but you're going to see this confluence of choices that the customer today wants it in all sorts of different ways. So I think the stores are there. 70% of the business five years from now is still done in physical stores. But the customer today, particularly the millennial generation, wants to connect digitally, wants right. to be met on a pickup and all these different ways. So it's going to look very different than it looks today. The world is changing. Walter Robb, of course, the former co-CEO of uh, Whole Foods Market. He's now got his own company, Stonewall Robb, and it's really about sustainable organic investing. So there's a bunch of products, uh, food-type products, organic, that he's investing in. CBD. CBD. He, he, he said likes he'd take it. a look at it, yeah? Yeah, did he talked about his dad. Did you tell him about rubbing the CBD oil in, on your hand during one show <laughs> one and then being very relaxed for the rest of the show? That didn't come like, up? No, uh, I didn't, didn't hear come that come up. up. Uh, really interesting guy. And, it, and as I said, as I was introducing, as you were like running back from your previous interview, uh, food has been such a front and like, center. Front and center here. I'm amazed. I would not have expected that. No, right. And I mean, this is what's fascinating about this this uh, conference. But yeah, a lot of people talking about food and, and in terms of the changing dynamics, changing di demands. But I really do wonder, you know, how do you meet? How do you uh, amp up production? Right. Right from these alternatives. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.